Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 19, August 2019, The Dictionary of American Regional English, D.A.R.E. A conversation with Joan Houston Hall. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. Since the last podcast, I've been coaching a movie depicting the earliest stirrings of the American Civil Rights Movement. In my research, I came across an amazing recording from 1895. I get shivers listening to these early recordings. It's Booker T. Washington giving his Atlanta Compromise speech. Amazing on so many levels. This is a man born into slavery. I did some noise reduction to help us out. You'll hear him say, Mr. President, gentlemen of the Board of Directors and Citizens, one-third of the population of the South is of Negro race. No enterprise seeking the material, civil, or moral welfare of this section can disregard this element of our population and reach the highest success. Listen. Mr. President and gentlemen of the Board of Directors and Citizens, one-third of the population of the South is of a Negro race. No enterprise which is the material, civil, or moral welfare of this sector can disregard this element of our population and reach the highest success. It's like time traveling, isn't it? Time now for Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Before I know it, I think it was like in about three or six months, I was speaking English. So I ran to my school one day. I said to my counselor, I can now speak English. Can you please put me in English classes? And he said, you are speaking. How did you do that? I said, I know how to get it. So anyway, <laughs> so I spoke English and then they, they were able to put me in regular classes. If you guessed Haiti... Very well done. It was Ideas Haiti 2, submitted by senior editor David Neville and recorded by Autumn Paramore, his student. The speaker was born and raised in Haiti until age 15 and carried her accent on her life's journey that included many years in New York City and Los Angeles. To hear the whole recording, search for Haiti 2 at dialectsarchive.com the home of the International Dialects of English Archive. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? The rainbow is a division of white, white, into many beautiful colors. This takes the shape of a long, round arch that is passed high above and its two ends apparently, apparently beyond the horizon. There is, according to legend, a boiling pot of gold and one end. People look, but no one ever finds it. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Joan Houston Hall, Chief Editor of the Dictionary of American Regional English, DARE for short. Please read more about her and the dictionary by following the links on the Inner Manner of Speaking homepage at paulmeyer.com. Joan, very nice to have you with well, me thank today. You. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. First of all, just give us a quick 
your potted version of how D.A.R.E. got started. Well, if you want to go back to the beginnings, you have to go back to 1889 with the founding of the American Dialect Society, because one of their goals was to create a dictionary of American English that would be similar to the dictionary of English dialects that was being done by Joseph Wright in England. And because this country is so very large, they knew it would take a long time. So what they did to start was found a journal in which scholars who went to different parts of the country would send back word lists. Over the course of years, they collected lots and lots of word lists. But the actual dictionary making didn't get started till very much later. Um, in the 50s, Fred Cassidy, who was at the UW-Madison, got a little bit antsy, saying, why aren't we getting going on this? So what he did was to do a preliminary survey in Wisconsin, asking hundreds, many hundreds of questions about everyday things like food and clothing and weather and money and school and religion and health. Agricultural terms, perhaps? Oh, yes, indeed. And he looked at those questions, and if people didn't get what he was trying to elicit, he reworded them, and he organized them and thought, this kind of questionnaire could be used in the whole United States. So he went to the American Dialect Society and said, folks, what are we doing? Why don't we get started? And, of course, anyone who has a good idea is usually appointed to carry it out, <laughs> as he was. So in the early 60s, that was the plan. And it wasn't until 65, when he recruited about 80 graduate students, that the actual interviewing got started. That was just an amazing project, because if you can imagine, in the mid-60s, when there was a lot of tension in the country, both from the Vietnam War and from civil rights activities, a young person getting into a what we called a word wagon, or a rudimentary camper that said University of Wisconsin-Madison on the side. And in that way, uh, we went to 1,002 communities all across the country. Which kinds of people used them? So is the Dictionary of American Regional English, what, what on earth do we mean precisely by that, by regional? Well, Dare uses regional in a very particular way. A word can be regional if it is not used everywhere in the country. So a region can be very, very large, almost the whole country, with the exception of one distinct area. Contrarily, it can be a very small region, such as a city, or in New York, even part of a city, or a state, but it can be uh, several states together. It can be a wide region, such as all of the north or all of the south. So regional is both geographic and social in DARE, and can be a very large region or a very small one. Give me a couple of words that are confined to the tiniest segment of the population or the tiniest geographical region. Take, for instance, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. There's a term Arab, it's spelled Arab, but it's pronounced Arab. And this is a person who goes around peddling vegetables. 
as far as we know, it's limited to Baltimore. So one could really give oneself away by answering the question, what do you call someone who peddles vegetables on the street? And you said, well, that's an Arab. That would give you away as a Baltimore, Maryland resident, wouldn't it? And a more, a little bit more widespread use is here in southeastern Wisconsin. Uh, if people, a person from Milwaukee goes to the airport in Chicago, not very many miles away, and goes up to someone and says, can you tell me where the nearest bubbler is? They're likely to be uh, regarded with a blank stare. <laughs> bubbler in southeastern Wisconsin is the term for a drinking fountain. And people are very conscious of the fact that it's their word, it's regional. But when they go elsewhere, they forget that other people don't know it. And so they're brought up short by having people say, what? What's a bubbler? Fascinating. So I found some words uh, in the dictionary, like crawpappy and flummadiddle and catawampus and mulligrubs and wonderful words like that. I just couldn't help wondering how the people in the word wagon actually elicited these responses from the native speakers, the, the longtime residents. Of course, field workers varied in terms of their ability to become comfortable with the people they were interviewing and their sensitivity. But on the whole, I think we chose very good interviewers. And one of the things that uh, was intentional was that the first questions would be very, very neutral and unthreatening. So talking about the weather or clothing or foods, it wasn't until the very end of the questionnaire that they got into things like ethnic slurs or words that might have negative connotations. Mm -hmm. But some people were hesitant to give words that they felt were were not proper. Uh, one of my favorite examples is in the newsletter excerpt that you are linking to. It's by a young woman who was talking with an elderly man who was sitting in the room of his ill wife in a nursing home. He couldn't bear not to be with her, so he spent his days by her bedside. And that's where our field worker interviewed him. So they developed a really good relationship and were going on through the questionnaire. And they got to the question about words for a woman who might be considered immoral. And the man stopped, looked at her, considered, and then stood up and beckoned her out into the hallway where there was no one around and said, I've never said this word before to anyone, but you seem to be a very nice young woman and you're doing your job and this is scholarly research. So I will tell you, the word is chippy. We call them chippies. So where do they say crawpappy? A crawpappy is another word for a crawdaddy, and crawpappy is chiefly in the Ozarks. Ah. Ah. Crawdaddy is a variant of crawfish, or crawdad and crawfish. How about flumadiddle? In the Northeast, or New England, it's an old-fashioned word for a pudding that actually sounds pretty disgusting. <laughs> it's made of stale bread, pork fat, molasses, cinnamon, and cloves. Huh. 
I don't think you'd find it in cookbooks today. And I have no idea what a catawampus is, or where it's spoken, what it means. Oh, catawampus is something that's askew or awry, and it's widespread except in the Northeast. There are wonderful synonyms for that. Some of my favorites are, oh, it's antigodlin, meaning it's askew or diagonal, or it's psygoglin or anti-psygoglin or slaunchwise or skewgy. All of these are lovely phrases to just show that something's not right. This project is just catawampus. It's gone askew. It's gone sideways. It's gone, as they say in Britain now, pear-shaped, which I think is lovely. Huh. It's it's gone like a pear rotting rotting in a bowl. It's it's kind of slumped, (laughs) pear-shaped. That's that's been developed since I left Britain uh, in the in the early seventies. So when I went back, I found words like. uh, like pear-shaped and gobsmacked to be a, oh to be gobsmacked a, to seems be to be very common here now. Yes, but I think it started in Britain. Yes. So yet we need these wonderful. We need so much these dialect dictionaries because language has our history sort of fossilized in it, doesn't it? It's kind of a sedimentary deposit, and we can examine our history and our migration. What can we learn, Joan? What What do you think are the most important things we learn from examining the different words we have for things? Well, we can certainly examine folk traditions and folk foods. Uh, we asked lots of questions about foods that people know around here, but other people wouldn't know. So we got, for instance, in this part of the country, a lot of Scandinavian foods, lutefisk, lefse, kringle, krumkaka, lots of K words because they're Germanic and Scandinavian. Well, one of the unique features of DARE is that there's an index to all of the ethnic terms, the regional terms, the social labels that we use, so that if you're interested in finding out where Dutch words are used in this country, you can go to the index and have a list of words and go to those words and see that in the early days of this country, Dutch words were concentrated in New York, which is logical. But later on, many of the Dutch words are found instead in western Michigan and Iowa, where there are still very strong Dutch communities. So you can find traditions and uh, foods in particular. So we do get the uh, the human history by examining where a word is spoken, where it's used. We do. It's a rich source of information about our history, isn't it? It's, it's not subject to historical revisionism. It's there. We, we can examine it. It's data. It's, it's not a matter of opinion. It's information that cannot be censored or, or have a spin put on it. Yes, and our stance has always been we are reporting what people say. We're not endorsing words, and we're not criticizing words. What we've discovered in recent years, since all of the data have been available on our website, is that if people don't understand that we were simply finding what people, what words people use, 
And they go to a website and find the N-word, for instance, in a lot of combinations for flowers and for rocks and things like that. They are likely to send us an email and say, you shouldn't have that on your website. And so we have to carefully explain why it's there. We're not saying it should be used or that it was good or that it was recommended, but it simply is part of our history. Now, of course, um, you are more concerned with dialect and I'm more concerned with accent in the kind of work I do as a as a dialect coach and as a teacher of stage dialect to actors and as, a, as someone who helps people acquire a new accent for social or professional purposes. The difference, of course, being a, a dialect is inclusive of accent, but uh, accent is simply the pronunciation. But yet D.A.R.E. has this wonderful facility now that you've put your recordings in the digital version of serving both purposes. We can derive the pronunciations of earlier times as well as the lexical items, the words, the the dialect words for things. Yes. Do you find actors use D.A.R.E. as a rich resource for their historical construction of pronunciation? Yes, we do. For instance, Diane Keaton used D.A.R.E. recordings from Mississippi for Crimes of the Heart. Various dialect coaches have used our recordings for productions of um, To Kill a Mockingbird, for instance, or Raisin in the Sun, and many others. And these are recordings, once again, from from that five to ten years of gathering, right? It was so it's, it's sort of locked into the into the sixties, the nineteen sixties. Yes. Sixty five through seventy, so a six year period. I was wondering whether dialect words tend to exist in oral contexts and are perhaps not so much used in written context. I wonder is is that true? Has I have I got the wrong end of the of the stick on this that uh, that some of these colourful local words like crawpappy and so forth, that if they were writing a letter or or writing a novel or a textbook, that they might use some more formal term. So is there there some indispensable value to the orality of the gathering that one wouldn't simply get by a written questionnaire? Think about all the terms around the country that people use for their grandparents. You can have your granny and grampy, you can have your mima and papa, oma and opa, murmur and morfar, uh, big daddy and big mama, and all sorts of wonderful regional terms. Those are not the kinds of things you would use in a written, a formal written context. You would say my grandmother and my grandfather. Or think about things around the house. For instance, what do you call the end slice of a loaf of bread? Most often it's the heel, but people also call it the tippy, the kink, the pope's nose, the tailgate. <laughs> uh, these are kinds of things that you're unlikely to find in written sources. Yes, yes. So there's a popular notion that with today's mass media and mass communication and uh, tremendous personal mobility that that all the American English dialects in, uh, have become homogenized and are all sort of boiling down into into one sort of general American speak. What's your perspective on the 
the divergence and the convergence of dialects? Well, it's certainly true that many of the very distinct regional patterns that we found 50 years ago are not nearly as distinct now. The edges are fuzzier. Some words have gone out of use. So it's true that there are many differences in current usage than 50 years ago. And a lot of the regions are probably not distinguishable now. For instance, one of the questions we asked was, what do you call a long sandwich with meats and lettuce and tomatoes on a big bun? Of course, we got a hero in New York and a grinder in New England and a hoagie in New Jersey. The regional pattern for hoagie was just beautiful. Uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, a very well-defined region. About 15 years ago, I was driving through the mountains of northern Idaho and came around a curve to where there was a tiny little cafe that advertised hoagies. Mm. So the patterns are not as distinct, the edges are fuzzy, and there are a lot more outliers. But you can still see many of those patterns. So language changes, but it doesn't change in the same ways or at the same rates in every part of the country. So when people say that language is becoming homogenized, my response is not homogenized, different. There are different regionalisms, and whenever a new word or phrase pops up in a place and fills a need, it will take hold. One of my favorite words in the whole dictionary was not written in English. Well, I guess we found one printed instance. The term was babashili. One of the questions on the questionnaire was, what do you say if two people are really good friends? You might say they're two peas in a pod, they're chums, they're pals, they're bosom buddies. Well, one person in Texas said they're big babashilis. <laughs> and the way the field worker had written it, it looked as if it might be Irish the Bobby Sheelys. So we checked all the English dialect sources we could and came up with nothing. Uh But then we found that William Faulkner used it, only he used it as a verb. We'll Bobby Sheely on back to the hotel. And then we found another Southern Alabama instance. This was in a novel, again, a verb. But ultimately, we discovered that this was a Choctaw word, and it comes from the phrase itibapishili, which means my brother with whom I was suckled. And it turns out that not only is it lovely in terms of its regional distribution throughout the Gulf states, but it's still used. I heard from people who responded to an article I wrote about it saying, oh, yeah, my... uh, Boy Scout camp used the term babashilis. If we were good friends, we'd say, hey, he's my babashili. And he said, we still use it. And Millsap College in Mississippi has babashili as the name of its uh, college yearbook. So I was really thrilled to find that that regionalism still lives. I love that. I asked you to choose some of your favorite audio samples from the D.A.R.E. archive what would you like me to play? We've got Feeding Chickens from Mississippi, Chuck Wagon Etiquette from New Mexico, Smuggling Liquor from New York, and 
Black Power in Tennessee and... My favorite is the Brooklyn, New York excerpt of a woman telling about her trip to Cuba and coming back with some illicit bottles of liquor. Let me play that. Oh, going to Cuba. I went to Cuba on Prohibition time, too. And uh, I bought a lot of fancy bottles, a little, like one drink in for souvenirs for all my friends. Well, Atlantic City, the ship was stopped. It was all in the newspapers about it, too. The crew had uh, ripped the walls and put all liquor in the walls. So we all had to get up, 3 o'clock in the morning. And, oh, it was a scream. The men were coming down their pajamas and bathrobes, and they had bottles sticking all out all over. And anyone could see they had the bottles. And, uh, oh, the captain says, get rid of that stuff. They're searching the boats. They're downstairs ripping the wall apart. So they looked us all over at... uh, for liquor and for uh, bringing things in from Cuba. And the girl in front of me, she had had a bottle she's bringing in from her mother-in-law, and they found that bottle in her bag. So they found a $50 and threw it over the side of the boat. So then I got panicky because <laughs> I had about six little bottles And I thought, I'll have to stay on boat and wash the dishes. I spent all my money down there. I was coming home broke. So the doctors are not allowed to touch the women. They send you down to the matron. So when he went to examine me, he said, "Uh, you're a very sick woman. You better go down to the matron. See, I was so nervous and upset that my pulse was going so fast. And I couldn't talk. (laughs) And I was holding my coat around my stomach, see, so they wouldn't... And I guess he thought I was pregnant, see, because the bottles all started to move to the front. So he says, oh, like a sick woman, you better go down to the matron. And all I could think about was, oh, if they ever find those bottles, I'll have to stay on ship a month to pay up for it. If, you, if they find you $50 a bottle, I think I had eight. What do we learn from this? She uses the stereotypical pronunciations, and it's just just classic. Great. What's another one you'd like me to play? The excerpt from Tennessee is really interesting because it has a story of what the speaker thinks is the actual origin of the term black power. And whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it's a great story. And it's also a good example of an urban African-American dialect as of the late 60s. If we contrast that to a different Tennessee speaker, also an African-American, but of a man who was in his 70s at the time, it's just amazing to hear the difference in generation and in style. Stokely Carmichael was a total unknown except to other people who were in the SNCC organization in Atlanta. And Stokely Carmichael was a field marshal 
even though he was ahead of his organization, he was just he was just like a marshal, keeping everyone in line. And Martin Luther King and all the big leaders and everything was at the front of the march, you know. Mm-hmm. And I they had newsmen all around, but Stokely wasn't in there. He was back there in the middle, you know, with, with the rest of us. And I was close to the end. And uh, we were saying, we need more power, power, Lord. We need more power, power, Lord. And this little boy, who was around about 12 years old, he decided somewhere in the back of his little mind, he said, We need black power, power, Lord. We, and they were saying, We need brown power, power. And then, and it's just, it's a black power, like they caught on for some reason, like a spark, just like that. And we were all in the back singing this, We need black power, power. And then everybody called in the middle, and that's what Stokely was. And Stokely called. <laughs> So the carbicle called on and started saying black power. He started marching up and down the line. And he said, said, we need black power, power. One night the rats heard a loud noise in the loft. It was a very dreary old place. The roof let the rain come down, come washing in. The beams and the rafters had all rotted through, so that the whole thing was quite unsafe. At last, one of the joists gave way, and the beams fell with one edge on the floor. The walls shook, the cupola fell off, and all the rats' hair stood on end with fear and horror. Wonderful contrast. Tell us about the New Mexico one. It's a a cowboy who obviously has spent a lot of time out in the dusty West and is doubtless a smoker as well. This is a 76-year-old white man with a grade school education. He's from Roswell, New Mexico. And let's listen to, to this gentleman. And you are never supposed to eat on the chuck box lid. We have a lid, a box where the cook keeps all of his dishes and his room cooking utensils with a fire about 10 feet behind that wagon. The chuck box is laid down and you are never supposed to walk between that chuck box and that fire because that part of the ground belongs to the cook. And you are never supposed to eat on a chuck box lid. And you are never supposed to ride up to the wagon from the side the wind's coming from, because your horse and the dust and the hairs off your horse will fry into your cooking utensil. You're supposed to ride facing the wind, coming to the wagon, and never get too close. That's great. Love it. I love it. As you may know, Joan, I'm very interested in Shakespeare's original pronunciation, the style of spoken English of the late 16th, early 17th centuries, the style of speech that the early colonists would have brought with them to North America. And I had a podcast with the wonderful dialect coach Linda Nichols-Gidley, tracing the origins of Australian English from its birth in, in Britain. We know from the ship's manifest of those people on that first fleet exactly where they came from, where they were sentenced, what their crimes were, probably where they were born, 
and the dialect words they would have brought with them. I wondered if there was an equivalent for North America because those those uh, Mayflower passengers would have brought the dialect words that they had spoken in their various regions of England. There are some uh, entries in Dare that are distinctly regional that can be shown to have originated in Scotland. So, for instance, one of the questions we asked was, what do you say if somebody is really snoring loudly? And people will say he's sawing logs or cutting wood. But in parts of the South, the phrase is, he's calling hogs. And it turns out that in Scotland, hog is another word for a sheep. And in this particular part of the plantation culture, many of the field drivers, that is the people who had control of the slaves, were from Scotland. Our evidence shows that calling hogs for snoring loudly is chiefly among black speakers and chiefly in this area where Scottish field drivers were prevalent. So is that the kind of thing you're interested in? Absolutely. That is fascinating. Your remark about wanting to do Shakespeare in the original pronunciation uh, interests me because I've been working with a colleague on a dictionary of Smoky Mountain and Southern Appalachian English, and one of Michael Montgomery's primary sources is Civil War Letters, Now, these are not spoken, of course, but the spellings are extremely helpful in letting us know uh, how words were pronounced. Yes, and certainly from the 17th century, before spelling was standardized, people's letters to each other from a distance conveyed their pronunciation in a remarkable way. And, of course, that's one of the chief forms of evidence that David Crystal Uh, draws upon when establishing the pronunciation of Shakespeare's English. Didn't he do this with his son? Yes, Ben Crystal is uh, following in the family business and uh, Uh is a scholar in his own right, yes. Well, I hadn't realized that you worked with them. That's very exciting. And um, as one lexicographer to another, David David says hi. He's, of course, just brought out a year or two back his Oxford Dictionary of Shakespeare's Original Pronunciation. Every word in the canon pronounced in IPA, transcribed in IPA. No no definitions, just the pronunciation. So you are Dare, and he is Dosp. David's going to be a guest of mine on another podcast a little later, and uh, we already did a fascinating segment on that area of linguistics known as pragmatics which was kind of of new to me. Well, Joan, Uh it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today, and um, thank you for sparing this delightful hour with me. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And thanks to you for joining Joan Houston Hall and me, Paul Meyer. Join me next time, when my guest will be Lorraine Newman, founding cast member of Saturday Night Live. Among other things, we'll be talking about how she creates those dozens of character voices she's so famous for. Next time in A Manner of Speaking.